I'm Charles Wyckoff, and it's a privilege and a pleasure to be here with a good friend and colleague in the retina space, Carl Chalky, MD, PhD at Retina Foundation of the Southwest in Dallas, Texas. And Carl, you recently presented some fascinating sort of background data on verisimab and the story of VEGF inhibition in combination with manipulation of the TIE2 pathway um, at angiogenesis in 2021. And I really want to kind of unpack two topics with you. Um, the first related to this improved drying signal that we're seeing in the furosemab DME population, and then more broadly about the possible mechanisms of action for which we're going to see clinical value over time in patients with a broader scope of exudative retinal diseases. Great. So let, 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 let's, let's start first with the DME discussion, right? So in the top line, furosemab DME um, uh, phase three program, Yosemite and Ryan, um, frisimab compared to a flibercept, we saw consistent signals of improved anatomic outcomes across CST, across the proportions of patients with a quote-unquote dry retina, and the proportions of patients with um, a, a resolution of intraretinal fluid, improved outcomes with frisimab over, over a flibercept. And at the most basic level, I think the question people have when they see that, is this all due to a higher anti-VEGF binding capacity of six milligram furosemab compared to a flibercept. How do we know that there's a signal in this that the ANG2 inhibition component is actually doing something? Right. Well, Charlie, that's a, a great question. Of course, it's a, it's a critical question. And I think the support of the synergistic effect, so to speak, of ANG2 inhibition with anti-VEGF is really, uh, there's multiple ways to, that support uh, that data. You know, there are times when preclinical observations pan out. Clearly the preclinical observations that Napoleon Ferrara and other folks did many years ago in regards to VEGF panned out. VEGF clearly was, is a critical growth factor in many of our retinal vascular diseases. Similarly, if you look at the preclinical data, the totality of the data on the effects of ANG2 and its, its ability to interact in multiple ways, and they're complex ways, that when you alter the ANG2, ANG1 ratio, and you get VEGF and ANG2 together, it really appears to kind of act in concert. And so now when you have a molecule like furosemab um, and you bind both of them together, there's preclinical data uh, to support that um, that I presented, but there's the pathways themselves are synergistic. So it really makes total sense. And of course the consistency across the trials, as well as we can't forget that even in the Ruby trials uh, with Regeneron, they demonstrated a similar outcome and that there was improved uh, resolution of fluid, improved compaction. And this finding, especially now with the um, Yosemite and Rhine data of improved intraretinal compaction as well, to me all supports this idea that ANG2 truly is a critical player uh, in these diseases and helps modulate at least initially the permeability as, uh, aspects of the disease. So I think the, the fact that we're seeing that in both trials consistently across time 
really speaks to that both of these molecules, clearly VEGF is an important anti-permeability uh, protein, but also that ANG2 is acting in concert. So from my perspective, I think these data truly support all of the wealth of preclinical information we have on the role of ANG2 in retinal vascular disease. I think you summarized that perfectly and, and I, I am beautifully and I, and I have, you know, if, if I had to push back a little bit, right, because the counter argument is, all right, Carl, but look at broluxizumab, right, and Hawk and Harrier. We've got a, a much higher molar anti-VEGF binding capacity with broluxizumab, right, approximately what, tenfold or greater higher um, anti-VEGF binding capacity than two milligram um, of flibercept in the Hawk and Harrier trials. And indeed, you saw better drying um, at those pre-specified endpoints in, in Hawk, um, uh, where you had better superior driving with p-values associated with them, with broluxizumab compared to a flibercept that's 100% due, probably, to increased VEGF binding capacity. So what, so what really gives you data from Yosemite and Ryan to say, mm, there's something more here? Um, and, and, the, and the point from Ruby, I think, is a really good one. But what, what's sort of your answer to that when people push back? Yeah, so I think there it. are several approaches that you have to take. One is you really have to look at the fact that the total amount, the molar equivalents that were given in Yosemite and Ryan uh, for Israel were really not that um, large, right? Uh, yes, there was a approximate, when you look at the binding capacity of Frisimab, the uh, affinities for VEGF are really not that dissimilar from ranibizumab. And we know that in terms of in increasing just the amount of ranibizumab, we don't see really any benefit. So this concept that somehow the molar equivalence of our anti-VEGF agents are what's playing a, an important role really has not been supported by a wealth of, of clinical data. And of course, the other aspect is that there is so much excess of our drug in, in, a, in relationship to the amount of VEGF that we're really not you know, talking about a competitive um, perspective. When it, when it talks about brolicism, I mean, first of all, the, you know, you're correct. The molar equivalents compared to uh, perisimab are in the order of eight, nine, tenfold higher. So these are enormous amounts of anti-VEGF. The other thing that I think we have to take into account, and this may have played a role in terms of the brolicizumab data, was the size, right? We've done a lot of work in understanding how molecules get through the retina. We've published work on the transport of compounds through the retina. And clearly, you know, brolicizumab is a very small molecule. These weird FE kind of portions, 23 kilodaltons approximately in size. It's not surprising that they could potentially get into the tissues a little bit better, bind more of the available VEGF and therefore lead to improvements in drying. But what didn't pan out in brolicizumab compared with ferisumab was the durability. So what's interesting is, is that ferisumab in the, in the data that you presented in the day the data that Jeff presented, it clearly demonstrated that ferisumab appeared to have a much longer and better durability, even though on a molar equivalency basis, it was significantly less. So I do think that this idea that it's simply a molar basis of, of anti-VEGF has not been, it's just not supported by the, uh, the data. I mean, 
for example, if you want to talk about affinity or binding, you know, um, if you look at a flipper step, uh, it's an immunohesin, which means that it's actually a receptor uh, bound to an Ig molecule. Receptors we know have enormously high affinities. That's why a flipper step has compared to ranibizumab and even a standard antibody has a much, much higher affinity. So if you were gonna talk and compare purely on an affinity basis, you would have argued that a flipper step should have won the, um, the uh, show and clearly it underperformed compared to um, perisimab. So I think this idea that it's simply, we're arguing about molar equivalence of anti-VEGF is a very small piece. And I think what we're seeing is an additional aspect of uh, a biology uh, when we look at the data that you presented and Jeff, data, Jeff presented on perisimab. Carl, fascinating perspectives, thank you. And, and, and the second topic I'd love to pick your brain about is sort of the, the mechanisms of action of ANG2 inhibition here, right? Because I think, I think mechanistically, VEGF-A is fairly simplistic compared to the TI2 pathway. I mean, VEGF-A, we think of as pro-permeability. We think of it as you know, pro-angiogenesis, neovascularization, and maybe a little bit of inflammation, but mostly the first two. And now you walk through multiple potential mechanisms by which ANG2 inhibition may impact short-term and long-term outcomes for these eyes with, with various extradative retinal diseases of all these mechanisms that you've described and have been you know, published on by multiple different authors, what do you think are gonna be the most important mechanisms for which we'll see clinical value over time? Yeah, I mean, I think what, we're, what we know in terms of this concept of stable versus leaky vessels, we know, I mean, we've had 15 years of anti-VEGF experience. And what we know is we really don't fundamentally disease modify. Right? That's why we have to continually re-inject, re-inject the majority of our patients, regardless of what disease they come into the clinic with. And so one aspect of anti-VEGF is that it clearly affects permeability, but I'm not sure it's addressing the full spectrum of pathologies that are occurring at the vascular level. ANG2, we're hoping, is part of that pathology. And so the idea would be is that if we can get vessels to become more stable, if we can create these tight junctions and the, the complexity around what's happening when you overexpress ANG2 uh, relation to ANG1 is very complex, but you can simplistically think of this is as the vessel is remaining unstable. And while we change the permeability temporarily with anti-VEGF, we're really not disease modifying. And so the hope is that with anti-ANG2 in addition to anti-VEGF, we're reducing the permeability and ultimately we're gonna to get to vessel stability. And that's why even in the angiogenesis meeting, I pointed out and we've talked about this, is that really this is the one time when the phase with the second year data is actually in many ways gonna be much more exciting than the year one data because it's gonna be in year two where we really are gonna see hopefully this uh, stability uh, potential of anti-ANG2 play out. And of course, in the clinic, we'll see this even more because we'll start to obviously titer our patients off the drug and see what happens. So these are really you know, it, a different mindset in thinking about how we're gonna approach these diseases. With anti-VEGF, 
It was all an immediate effect. It got resolution, it came back, we treated, we got resolution. Here, we're not talking about potentially disease modification, resetting the entire vascular network to a stable network. And that may take 12 months, may take 24 months. And that's what the exciting part will be for next year. Fascinating. So if I had to probe one, one level deeper on that, so what, what are we going to be looking at? Are these anatomic um, OCT-based endpoints? Is this leakage on fluorescein? Or is this sort of biomarkers that we don't really understand yet, right? Pericyte survival, fibronectin deposition, all these other sort of secondary issues that we don't have good ways to assess in the clinic. Like, are there certain endpoints that we should be thinking about moving forward? Well, clearly the way the, the, the trials are set up are just to look at how what you presented, you know, the fact that we really had a, this large group of patients who went out to 12 to 16 months of interval treatment. The first readout will be, is that maintained or even the, the number of patients that are um, increased in that group increased uh, will be the first readout of whether we're getting to stability, simply an OCT-based uh, readout, which I think is gonna be probably the most valid uh, in terms of vessel stability. Now, ultimately, once we get into the clinic with this drug, there'll be a host of various ways to interrogate, because it's not something that we've ever really thought about, this idea of interrogating a vessel stability uh, with, with, you know, fluorescein angiograms or OCTAs in a way that we can somehow measure a vessel stability will be the exciting aspect of, I think, the research that's going to come, hopefully, when we have frisimab in the clinic. Carl, thank you. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for everything you do in the field. Look forward to, to more. Enjoyed it, Charlie. Have a good day.